0: On this edition of the Billitor Christi Podcast, we are joined by Wes McGarry as we discuss the top ten challenges facing the church in 2019.
1: Listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas.
0: Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics while stepping into the arena of ideas, this is the Bellator Christi podcast and this is your host for the time we have together, yours truly, Brian Chilton. We have a special podcast for you today on TAP. We are joined by uh, Pastor Wes McGarry, uh, who is a pastor here at Westfield uh, Baptist Church. Uh, he just uh, earned his Master of Arts in Christian Studies from Southeastern Baptist Theological uh, Seminary and is uh, preparing to do uh, doctoral work here very soon. And so, uh, Wes, we want to welcome you to the podcast today.
2: Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I, I pump the brakes there I'm real soon. We're... Uh taking a little bit of a break here but hopefully going to pick it up not too far from now so looking forward to that
0: I understand completely is about a about a year or two I think before a break that I had before <laughs> I started myself Yeah, if
2: it was just me, I'd probably go ahead and jump right into it But with, uh, with a wife and kids at home, that they're desperately wanting me to stay home And I desperately want to be there, so uh, it's, it's a little bit of all of that combined Getting a little break in before, so
0: Absolutely, I understand completely Today we have a uh, special podcast on tap We're going to talk about uh, the top ten l- challenges we see facing the church in 2019 And as we get before we get started on this, I do want to ask a favor from our listening audience. Uh, Wes and I were talking about this before the podcast. Uh, We have a YouTube account set up uh, with uh, Bellator Christie, but it was set up under a gaming name more than eight years ago. Uh, So if you'll go to YouTube.com forward slash crazy name, I know BC Power Man, and if you'll click subscribe there, uh, we'd greatly appreciate it. We're 19 uh, subscriptions away. from having the 100 we need uh, to be able to change the URL or the tag name uh, to get it linked in with Bellator Christie so if you haven't subscribed we ask that you would do so and of course if you haven't subscribed to the website or the podcast we encourage you to do that as well alright we're going to uh, start on this top 10 list we also want to say that uh, this morning that what we did when we compiled this list is Wes, he, got to, he, uh, he compiled his list, and I compiled my list, and then we shared the information together afterwards and kind of compared and contrasted the information we both had. And we were greatly in alignment uh, on, on a lot of these issues. And so we're going to take a top ten list, uh, starting with number ten, uh, depression and suicide. Uh, Wes, how do you see this as being an issue for us in our time?
2: Yeah, so it's funny that, uh, that this one made the list, too, because uh, just a few months ago, uh, we or our students here at the Westfield went through a depression series uh, because it's such a, a prevalent thing, especially when it's being propagated by the media with, with TV shows. Um, not to name any names or anything like that, but uh, that it's it's almost become the, the cool thing that's that's expected. I I think there's just such a, a stigma about it that we all have to have our lives put together in such a way that that we can't have any faults. And I think especially from a pastoral perspective, when we understand that you know just as everybody's life is broken, that it's our pastor's life can be broken too. And it's a it's an extremely demanding job with a, with a lot of weight um, and responsibility. And most of the time, in a lot of, especially smaller local churches, uh, that weight is burdened by one person, and so I can. It's very easy to let that weight um, take you under and and bury you um, in so many different ways, and so it's it's very difficult thing to deal with, and and really the the one thing that kept coming up in my research when I, we were doing this study with our students is the fact that the the number one thing that people need to do if it's no matter who you are that's suffering from depression is never go through it alone uh, when you when you start to do that, that that's when the, the problems really arise when you think that you're tough enough to fight this on your own um that's that's when you fooled yourself and thinking that you can in reality that's just not the case most of the time uh, you need to you need to seek help from from pastors from counselors from therapists and and now think less of yourself because it's I, I don't remember the statistic offhand but it was a crazy high statistic of the amount of teenagers that experienced depression some point in their in their teen lives and it that that number was Went up as they got older into adulthood. So it's not something you grow out of. It's not something you're immune to. It's not something that you'll ever be able to to get rid of. It's there. It's it's a reality. It's not a good reality, but it's a reality that uh, that we had to deal with and we had to face.
0: Absolutely, well said. And, and in fact, I uh, had a couple of thoughts as you were talking about this. Uh, being a pastor of of churches where I was the only one compared to having uh, a pastoral staff, I have to say it's a lot easier. Having a tag team partner and, I, and I'm very grateful that we're working together and, and it does take a lot of the pressure off, I think. Um, but I think a lot of pastors, especially individuals who may even be bivocational pastors, the amount of weight that they have upon them is enormous, uh, trying to schedule everything and and as you say, depression can be a, a reality in, in many individuals in, in pastoral ministry and I think that is something well worth, well worth mentioning. And as you said, suicide is a growing epidemic, and even in our area, it seems like it has, the number of cases you hear about the suicides is, is, has become astronomical.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. When you uh, talked about the idea of, of the pastoral staff and the weight that it carries, We we both kind of Understand that to to some degree, kind of leads into the to the next one here about the unrealistic expectations of pastoral staff. Number nine, um, you know, I, when I when I was thinking through this one, it was more of the idea of churches that are seeking a pastor, probably because that is something that is so. Prevalent in our area currently with all the different churches that are looking for pastors and I haven't looked at their job description So hopefully I'm not describing them, but it's it's crazy what they're asking pastors to do not because they're they're bad things But the amount of work that they want them to do the amount of education that they want them to have and the amount of experience that they want them to have at being either very old or most of the time younger and they want you to come in, they want you to do that for five bucks an hour. You know, it's, 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 that's, that's the world that we live in. And it's, I don't think that's just in ministry, that's probably in the corporate world as well. People want to get as, as much as they can for as little as they can. Uh, and I understand that to a degree, but at the same time, it's, it's very, um, difficult that you want somebody that can be on call 24-7, but yet you don't want to, to fork over any kind of money or, um, Benefits to, in order to make that
0: happen. Wanting someone to be 30 years old with 50 years of experience, it yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. doesn't work. <laughs> and you know, it's funny you mentioned that too, because Tom Rainer was talking about working with some churches uh, who were looking for pastors, and, and asked them to list out the amount of hours they expected the pastor to do different tasks. And I think he said by the time they calculated it together, the pastor was only going to get like one hour of sleep each yeah. night. It was ridiculous. I can believe that. You know, so... Absolutely, number nine, unrealistic expectations of pastoral staff. Number eight uh, is a real problem in many churches. Uh, disunity in the church. Uh, we, this was a situation we both agreed on. Uh, what What do you see as the problem here?
2: Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that this could probably be attributed to. In reality, I, I think the the problem itself is is quite obvious. You know, it's disunity. People people don't get along, and that's just how people have always been, even from the very beginning. Um, people struggle to, to coexist together because they have different ideas and different convictions. Um, and as weird as this may sound, one of the ways that we, I think, can combat this unity is that if we will understand core values and core convictions and understand that this is where we draw the line. And I think if we were to search scripture for some of those core values, that they would be greatly reduced. And I think that, as the old saying goes, we're, we're making mountains out of molehills mm-hmm. a lot of times in our churches uh, over things that are that are really, um, shouldn't be any kind of an issue, shouldn't be any kind of a problem. A strong preference becomes uh, uh, too prevalent in our in our churches, and we need to, to understand that we can have a, a growing church, we can have a, a vibrant church, but we've got to probably sacrifice a little bit of, of what yeah. we would like to see happen and we don't want to do that because it's our church. I think that's that's the root issue. It's just not our church. It's Christ's church and we need to, to get back to that idea that everything that we're doing needs to be centered on Him and if we're not doing that, if it's not centered on Him, what different are we than any kind of social club that could be gathering together, you know?
0: Amen. Very well said. Very well said. And if you were to look at theology, I've always thought that, that you can look at theology as being in four different areas, and and if you focus on like what you're talking about, the central what makes a C.S. Lewis would call mere Christianity, that makes a big difference, and and those issues are central to the gospel, and maybe even looking at some secondary issues as well. You're know, talking about theology and all, but but making the major folk make the majors the majors. I, I think that's very well said. Yeah, and
2: I, I want to be I want to be perfectly clear. I think there are things that are Worth fighting for? Absolutely. Um, I just think that the things that we're fighting for are not worth fighting for. The majority of the time <laughs> in our churches.
0: <laughs> like one person heard heard uh, tale of a church. Uh, not luckily not here, uh, not around here, but it's uh, but a church that split over the use of toilet paper mm-hmm. and the brand. I mean, it you know yep. there were some other issues, but obviously uh, that that's that's ridiculous. Number seven is a biggie. Um, this is. Uh, politics, and, and this, with the 2016 election, um, it, it seemed like it was growing even before then, uh, but it has just exploded since then, and it has become more and more divisive, it seems, as time has gone on. Uh, what are your thoughts on the, the issue of politics and the role we have in 2019 moving forward?
2: Yeah, before we get there, I, I kind of want to back up for just a second. One of the reasons that I included this uh, on my list is uh I'm Southern Baptist through and through, if you didn't know that, Um, you know, Southern Baptist uh, Seminary is is one of, I went to one of the big six, as they call, Um, and I'm very thankful for that, but I I really think that Southern Baptist kind of made a little bit of a mistake in their last convention meeting, and I, I I think that mistake was inviting a political prevalent individual to come speak at their convention. Um, I, I think I think that that was a little bit inappropriate, even you could say, uh, because where we essentially branded the Southern Baptist Convention with politics at that at that point. And I I think that was an error, and I am, again, Southern Baptist through and through, but I I, I vehemently disagreed with with that move to invite uh, the Vice President to come speak at the convention. Not because I have anything against the the Vice President in particular, in fact, I I actually find him to be a very pleasant individual from what I've uh, realized about him and know about him. Uh, but I just think that that was the wrong area to, to kind of get him to, to give a platform to speak at a convention uh, about that. Uh, so that, that, that was one of the, the motivating factors for putting that on my list. And I, I, I wonder how much we are promoting, um, again, disunity almost from the politics that we're driving in churches. And I think that we should allow our faith and our convictions to motivate us to vote in a certain way. But I think that's the extent of where politics ends. I don't think we should argue about politics. I don't think church, gathering together with fellow believers, is the appropriate time to talk about politics. Uh, that's just my thoughts. I, I think the idea of separation from church and state is a very good idea that we need to embrace. But we, as Baptists, Southern Baptists just seem to have thrown that out the window almost. Um, and I don't know why that is, and it's it's a little little disheartening that we are leaving churches because of political beliefs, and I, I think that there are times that leaving a church is a good thing to do, or not a good thing, but the right thing, but I never think that that should be over a political difference. I think that that's just crazy. And somehow we've wound up where we are now, where politics are driving the sermons, and not the word, and I think the word should be driving our politics. way we are, we've got this all mixed up and backwards.
0: You know, one thing I think about, you know, if if you look at the twelve disciples that Jesus chose, you have on one side um, a guy who is a zealot. I think Simon, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. so he he would be considered your uh, maybe ultra right wing guy, you know, because he he is uh, wanting to. Uh, well, maybe not. I don't know how you would designate that, but he's you know the zealots were wanting to overthrow the Roman government, get Israel back to you new know, nationalism, you know, to where it needs to be. But then on the other hand, you have Jesus calling Matthew, who is a tax collector who worked for the Roman government. I mean, so he, he's putting together individuals on two opposite extremes, and somehow or another makes that work, yeah. and then Matthew. Eventually, writes one of the gospels we have in the in, in the Bible, and so it's amazing to me that that Christ was able to bring together people from all different areas across the spectrum, and it seems like I mean, yeah, we we both have our political beliefs, we we have our convictions, and and obviously, yeah, we we need to be involved, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, but at the same time, let the gospel drive us. Rather than let politics drive us, in. and I think that's a very good point to be made, and something we need to seriously consider as we move forward, not only in 2019 but in the years ahead.
2: I think there's a there's a difference, um, and you know we'll we'll talk about this I think in a little bit. There's a difference in engaging in social issues that are directly related to the gospel and engaging in politics. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I think that sometimes it is difficult to find that line, right. but if we are incapable of finding that line, I almost think that the church, particularly its pastors, should step out and or step back, rather, and and reevaluate until they find that line, okay, this is this is what the gospel says about this, and then I stop. Um, and I, I, I just think that that's absolutely crucial to, to understand and, and do for so many different reasons, um, both biblically and um, legally and everything else, um, they're, they're we've. I think we've just messed up here in a, in a major way, and we've and we've again let. I think devil can use a lot of different things, and I think this is one of the things that he is using to tear people apart. Is politics, which is unfortunate, because um, how are we even going to be a nation if you know we're being driven apart daily by our our politics? When we need to get back to. What brings us together Absolutely. as a nation and as a church?
0: Absolutely. Well, number six is a big issue uh, that uh, that the church faces. And I think this is um, especially prevalent as we are uh, in fa- facing many churches. Now, now, don't get me wrong when I say this because I, I love our seniors. <laughs> and I want to make that clear. I, I love our, our, our senior adults. They're, they're a very important part of our congregations. But many churches, and I'm thinking, and I'm not talking about our church. I want make that none of these issues yes. we're talking about. Let me just clarify this: we're not talking about Westfield Baptist Church, right? We're talking about the American church in general. But there are many, many churches all across the nation. I'm thinking of one uh, near the place where, where we uh, where, where we used to live um, that uh, is, is is aging out. Most of the congregants in in well, if things continue according to Saving any miraculous means twenty years over ninety percent of the congregation I'm thinking about is going to you know most likely you know age out and, and pass away, and there aren't many young people coming in to that. Now, as we talk about trying to reach younger people, uh, millennials, gen gen was it gen, Generation Z something like that something some like generation <laughs> with a letter after it, yeah uh, you know, we have to talk about traditionalism and the problems that traditionalism plays in trying to reach younger generations. So, Wes, you're a youth pastor, you're associate pastor, you, you work with the youth. Uh, what are your thoughts about traditionalism and, and maybe some of the hindrances that it causes in trying to reach younger individuals?
2: I think traditions, in and of themselves, are, are not necessarily a bad thing. It's where we prioritize our traditions. If we say that something, if something is a good tradition and it's scriptural tradition, then I, I think it's it's maybe something to to hang on to. Um, I think most of our traditions are not necessarily unscriptural. I just think that they're something we've always done, not really good or bad, but we do them every year, so let's continue to do them every year. And I think we need to reevaluate those, and I I remember without a doubt the most difficult sermon I ever preached, and it was at Westfield, and I'll be honest with that, uh, was just a a couple months ago um, from the book of Amos, where Amos was prophesying through God, or God was prophesying through Amos, and he was telling them that you've been doing all these things for all these years, you've been following the rituals, you've been doing the things that, that we are supposed to be doing as, as good Jews, but your your motives and your heart and your desires are not in the right place, and so doing all these things, you're just wasting your time. And I think that's where traditional traditionalism always leads, if we do it because it's tradition, then that's, that's where the problem arises. If we do it because we're worshiping God and we do it because God is leading us to do it, then that's fine. And I think God can lead through tradition. I I think God doesn't have a problem with tradition as long as we remember that the reason that we're doing things is not traditional. And so I'll be honest, sometimes I I intentionally break the traditional mold because of that fact. And I think that's biblical. Mm. Um, I don't think we should ever stop doing something just to stop doing something, but I don't think we should just do something because it's what we've done. And so you've got to find that, that balance there of, okay, this is something that is beneficial, this is something that God is leading us to do, and we should do it, despite mm-hmm. if we've done it before or despite if we've done it for 30 years. And I think God can do something like that, and we, we've got to let God lead us. And if God is leading us through tradition, that's fine. If God is leading us to do something new, that's fine, too. We've got to have a willingness to accept to wherever God is taking us and whatever it is that God would have us do, whether that's something that we've been doing for 15 years or whether that's something that is that is brand new. Here's what I found about um, millennials and the younger generation. is I really think... Uh, that they are looking for authenticity. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems with traditionalism is that it removes authenticity. Mm-hmm. We do things because it's traditional, not because we believe in it, not because we, we like it. Um, it's just because we've done it. And so when we remove authenticity, we are losing the younger generation, my generation uh, mostly, and I, as a millennial, um, I will even say that I like authenticity. And so that's that's probably part of the reason why I do some of the things that I do in the local church, or don't do some of the things that I don't do in the local church, is because of my desire to to have authenticity. And that used to bother me because there's not a lot of people my age in the church, and so I'm I don't want to say in essence the only one, but I am in the minority for sure. In my age group for, for attending church regularly. And so there's nobody there to say the things that I'm saying. And so I'm kind of out here on a limb by myself almost trying to not appeal to my generation, but trying to give them something that they want. And I would even say that's something that it's okay for them to want. You know, mm-hmm. It's okay for them to want real faith and genuine faith and, and real missions. And um, we are so afraid to break tradition for whatever reason because somebody's great-great-great-grandfather did something and praise God for their great-great-great-grandfather and what they did but it's time that, that we move forward and it's time that we ignite something new um, and different and we follow God whether that's through tradition or whether that's something totally different what we have now.
0: I had a couple of thoughts. You mentioned this that the Holy Spirit did this with the early church I was thinking of two different ways that the Holy Spirit broke tradition, and for, you know, as difficult as it is for us to think about breaking tradition now, put yourself in first century Israel with with individuals who were Orthodox Jews, and the Holy Spirit led them because Jesus rose on a Sunday, they switched their day of worship from the Sabbath, which is on a Saturday to Sunday, which actually historically is good evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I was talking with Dora Watson about this just last night, and um, and it's amazing that they did that. Also, I'm thinking of Peter, who the Lord speaks to him and says, Take up and eat all of these different animals That formerly you couldn't eat Now you can eat them uh, In an effort to go out and reach Gentiles And he's saying, Lord, I can't I've never done that I've never broken these kosher laws Ever since I was a little boy And the Lord's saying, I'm telling you now It's okay Uh, You're in a new covenant It's okay now And so, it's difficult And, and, And I get that It's difficult to break traditions But if the Lord is leading us to do that then that's something we have to ask ourselves, which is more important, following the Lord or following our traditions? And secondly, Wes, something you mentioned that I think is very important about having a genuine faith. Some some friends of mine who were uh, in, in the apologetic ministry have said, have talked about this apologetics renaissance that's happening in the Christian church. And the wonderful news is that the strongest evangelists are actually millennials who have made their faith genuine they in fact I'm thinking of a couple right now who are millennials who actually go out to atheist conferences and pagan conferences in Hickory North Carolina and with the sole purpose of sharing the gospel and the reason they do that is they've made their faith genuine they've made their faith authentic so if giving up a tradition means that you have a genuine faith that's real to you that is going to lead you to, to win souls for the Lord, then I think it's worth giving up a few traditions if that's what you're gaining in return. And, um, you know, I think the Holy Spirit's done that in the past, and I think He's challenging us even now uh, to consider doing that.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's funny that you mentioned particularly that, that millennials are doing that because there's a without a doubt a stigma about millennials that they're lazy. Um and I don't think it's... Yes, some are lazy. Okay, There's no avoiding that. There's lazy people in every generation. Let's be realistic here. But I don't think it's necessarily that they're lazy. It's that they are having a hard time finding genuineness in the world. And they are having a hard time finding something that they're passionate about because they can't find anything that's genuine. And so I think if we can engage with the millennials and, and show them, look, you can have a genuine, real faith, that that is something that they'll become passionate about. And I'm thinking about the... Five or six you know, people, they're a little bit younger than me, that that are in our church particularly, that have the genuine faith that, that they long for and that they strive for. And they are some of the most passionate individuals for our church that I have witnessed ever. Um, and that's, that's incredible to me, that some of the people that are willing to step out, some of the people that are willing to try something new, but some of the people that are also saying, this is something that we've done, and we think that God can still use this. Uh, and they were instrumental in, in making that. And just to, to brag on them a little bit more, for, from a traditionalist perspective, again, with our recent service of, of Hanging of the Greens, they, they wanted to see that happen. And it's something that Westfield has been doing for, gee, I, I don't know, a long time, okay, I, years and years. And they wanted to hang on to that. And they mm-hmm. wanted to make sure that that still happened because they thought God could use it. Not because it's what they've done, but because they thought that God could be glorified through it. And it, they were right. Mm-hmm. and and we got to give them credit for that. But also they're willing to try some some new things that they've that they've been recently talking about, which I'm super excited about some of the things that they have planned uh, from the worship committee there and uh, that that two of our younger um millennial friends are on that committee that are going to be introducing some pretty exciting uh, things I think uh, to the to the church in the next couple months awesome 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 Um, don't let me forget about a conversation I
0: had with two younger people I think that actually is going to be in our our number one thing uh, talking about theology and apologetics we'll get to that here in a few moments if I can remember it. (laughs) number five uh, ethics uh, the inability to engage ethics properly And this goes back to something you were mentioning about politics Mm -hmm. and the the necessity to make a division between politics and uh, social issues, ethical issues. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, so uh, I uh, attended the North Carolina Baptist State Convention back in November, and Russ Moore was there. And I I got the opportunity to to hear him speak in in a small group session and um, a couple other times as well. And, And he said something that was very... Interesting to me that that I've kind of held on to uh, since since that moment. There's a shift, a pendulum shift, when it comes to uh, ethics and morality within the church, and this is, this is what he has observed uh, over the the course of the church in America, at least, that the pendulum either swings totally one direction, where the church says you can't do anything, um, that you're you're very constrained in what you can do, uh, and that's that's what we call legalism. Um, and he says that that's not good, but the church has done that in the past. He says now that the pendulum has shifted completely the other way, where we are completely um, entrapped with this idea of grace. And he, again, he says grace is a wonderful thing that we should embrace daily, but at the same time, we, we, we have got to realize that grace... Is supposed to lead us to change, and that we got to get that pendulum somewhere in the middle, where yes, God's grace is going to cover every sin that that we can possibly do, but that doesn't give us free license to to sin however we want to. And in fact, that's what that's what Paul says in the book of Romans. Uh, some, he asked a rhetorical question, should sin abound and should we keep sinning? And Paul responds with, uh, by no means. That's that's not what we should be doing, despite the continual grace that God shows us. That doesn't just give us a license to sin wherever we would like to. And so we, we are in that kind of cycle, and I think we, we're on the grace side. And hopefully, when it swings back towards the more legalistic side, we'll be able to stop it before it gets to, to full legalism to help us realize that, yes, God's grace covers everything, but that doesn't change uh, that the fact that we need to uh, watch what we do and and, and and be able to do that. And it's, you know, right now, it's so hostile if you tell somebody that what they're doing is wrong, no matter, I, maybe there's a right way to do it. I'm sure there's a right way to do it. But even if you do it the right way, let's, let's be honest, the realistic, idea is that they're going to be offended and that Mm. they're not going to respond well to that. No matter how you do it, no matter how well you approach the situation, they're not going to like the fact that you're telling them what they're doing is wrong. Um, And so what we've decided to do as the church is say, well, let's just not do anything and let's just let them do whatever they want to and hopefully they will eventually come back around. And maybe they will, maybe they won't. But we've, we've got to, as the church... Understand that there is grace, but we also cannot just simply stand by and let people continue to live in sin. I, mm-hmm. I think that's also wrong on the part of the church to do that and we've we've got to step up to the plate and and make that change uh, not away from grace but towards corrected behavior i don't really like that term but but towards more of scriptural behavior and and what we 're supposed to to do and what we 're not supposed to do and it's mind boggling to me just how much Scripture allows us to do? Like people call Christianity a legalistic religion, but like when you read the pages of the New Testament, First Corinthians, where it says Paul says everything is permissible, but not everything is, is beneficial. And in, in the Book of Colossians, you know, whatever you do, um, they, 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 you know, you need to be, you need to have love, you need to have compassion, you need to have grace, but. The main point that Paul was making in Colossians is that whatever you're doing, make sure the reason that you're doing it is for Christ. And mm-hmm. I think that's the, that's the point. And so I think that the God is not necessarily concerned so much with what we're doing. I think he is concerned with that, but I think he's more concerned about the reason why we're doing it and what is the outcome of, of of doing that. And that's something I've been trying to teach our students recently that we can do a lot of different things in our student ministry, but we need to ask ourselves, why are we doing it? And that answer needs to be centered on Christ, and what is the outcome of doing it? And that needs to be glorifying God. Um, and so that's something I've been challenging myself with and our students with to, to do here at the church.
0: Amen. Well, Sid, I've always, I've always thought, well, you know, Jesus tells us to be uh, the salt of the earth. And I think the salt there stands for, I uh, mean, standing for the truth. And then be the light of the world, meaning you know, showing the love of God. And there's this balance, and it seems like you know, Jesus had it right. I go back to what a, a former uh, friend of mine—well, uh, he's still a friend of mine—but former director of missions, and I knew uh, Jack Gentry. Um, he said that only Jesus had it right. You know, there's light and there's salt. Only he had the balance right. Light with no salt equals liberalism. Mm-hmm. Salt with no light equals legalism. And so both of them are on the on the side, uh on the opposite sides of the same coin. Um, and so I think that's well said, well put. Uh, let's take a look at number four: biblical authority or the lack thereof.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. Uh, it's I think it's much more prevalent um, when you think about all the the different things that colleges are teaching kids, especially those that are that are not Christian, and even some Christian colleges uh, that, that aren't teaching the inerrant word of God. Not so much that they're not teaching it, but the fact that they are teaching it but calling it errant and and yeah. wrong. I think that's a that's a big deal. And not so much that the even even that, you know, it's not good. I don't think we should do it. But I think one of the other issues that, that we need to, to face is that people don't find the word authoritative in their lives anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, they they find authority in other things and in people and government and all sorts of different things, jobs. But what we need to get back to is, is that God's word is authoritative for our lives. And I wish I had some sort of easy answers to how to, to produce that amongst the people. But I don't. I, that's... I don't know if that's a relatively new phenomenon. The idea of biblical authority is not authoritative anymore. something else is, but uh, I haven't found a, a good answer to combating that just yet.
0: Seems like to me that the that things go in cycles for the church. You know, it seems like you go by to those the. Uh, I was trying to think. It's the, murator, the Muratorian... not some Muratorian friend. There was a uh, early. My mind's just just left me on this, but uh, there was a guy who. Uh, set up a canon, but didn't have... He he had the Gospel of Luke, but he didn't have some of the other uh, Gospels in there. He was focused more on the Gentile Hmm. focus. And so... um, you know, that was actually beneficial because it helped the church to, to, to say, well, okay, we need to include these other books. This is part of the canon. But Dr. Habermas said that the vast majority of the canon was already established by 110. I mean, it was established early, but then you had people trying to take away books. And then uh, and so it seems like there's this this cycle we go through. And I remember uh, Dr. Daniel Aiken was talking about at the, at the state convention that... Uh, it used to be every what 70 years that we had to have a fight for biblical inerrancy huh. and now it's like whatever 20 or 30 it seems like and so um, I do think that is something we that is worth standing yeah. for and as uh, Phil Fernandez has said and I think he's right when you start losing biblical inerrancy, there's a slippery slope you go down that starts leading to all these kind of wacky ideas that's outside of Scripture. And so I, I agree with you on that.
2: Yeah, that's definitely one of the ones that is worth fighting for. Um, and if, if that causes disunity amongst believers, then I, I think I still think it's worth it. Um, I don't want to cause disunity unnecessarily, but I, I think it's an important one that, that we need to hang on to. And I'm not looking forward to that next five or so years, because if if Akin is correct, and I I just tend to believe he is, that we're almost there to, to the fight for biblical inerrancy and biblical authority in the life of our churches and that's that's not going to be a pleasant fight i, I have to I, you know
0: it seems like things in the scholarly community drifts over into the church really quickly now um, i used to be several years before it did but i think i think we're already there unfortunately because even the apologetic community and um you know and i have some friends who don't hold the same view that i do on inerrancy and you know and i'm not saying that they're heretics or anything like that but i do see that increasing problem where Uh, We are loosening our idea on on inerrancy, and that tends to, if history is an indicator, uh, it tends to start loosening other aspects of infallibility and even inspiration of scriptures really quickly. And so, uh, I I agree with you. We have to be really careful in this issue, uh, because once you start doing that, I think Phil Fernandez is right. It opens up the door for this slippery slope where you start allowing all these other issues to come in, and it can be, I think, very problematic.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I don't spend a lot of time on social media these days, but I do. I do recall one. You're thing, not missing anything. Yeah, I, I do recall one, except uh, for maybe
0: the Carolina State day. Uh, no, that,
2: that's we don't talk about that. Okay, that, that's one of those things that will cause disunity very quickly. So we, we just kind of glaze over those ideas. Uh, but I, I, I remember I was on. I think it was Facebook and. Uh, I was just scrolling through, and I, it was it was an organization. I can't remember if it was a Awana or something like that. Shared a picture um, with a with a speaker, and it was I think it was um, McDowell. I, I can't I can't remember exactly who it was, but on the on the picture it was a picture of him speaking, and it had the words that the biggest and it was a quote that the biggest problem facing the church today. Is biblical authority. It's mm. not anything else, but it's, it's biblical authority. And I can't remember what I saw on social media the last time that I was there. But ever since I saw that picture, it's it's really struck struck me and and stuck with me um, that this that he's right. That mm. this is, this is something that is becoming all too common. Um, and I, I don't know if if we've just done a poor job of, of teaching the the word of God and how to deal with the the problem issues and. To say that they're not there, I think, is, is false. There, there are some problematic texts that there are answers to, but they, they don't present themselves so easily that, that we need to, to reckon with and we need to deal with. And if we don't, then this is where we're headed. And mm. I don't want to go that direction um, at all. And, I, I, again, not, not so much looking forward to, to where we may be headed. And I, I had to place some of the blame on, on my shoulders personally because I, I don't know if I've dealt with those problem texts myself the way that I should have. So,
0: Well, and the thing is is that there are, I mean, this, this is an area where I was challenged early on. And, you know, I'll try not to spend too much time on this because I know we're running down on time here. But uh, I, I think, I'll just say this, I think there are answers out there available to us. It's even like the Gospels. One of the big things now are the so-called inconsistencies of the Gospels. But one thing that struck me is that if you look, the early church fathers even tell us this, that, for instance, Mark, he doesn't record in chronological order, and he didn't intend to. He's just recording the the teachings of Simon Peter. Uh, Matthew is is uh, grouping things together according to miracles and according to uh, some of the teachings of Jesus. John does that uh, quite a bit. I and mean, But Luke is the most chronological. And so a lot of these so-called contradictions aren't really contradictions at all uh, when you see the focus that they have and uh, what they're doing to the audiences uh, to which they're writing. So I think there are answers out there to these things. We just... I think dismissing the Bible as being errant—I don't think that's the way to go.
2: Yeah, Uh, if I can have one more point on this. Sure. Um, Again, I'm not going to call anybody out intentionally, but. No name names. (laughs) (laughs) No, no no name of names here. No name of names here. Um, It's it's amazing to me that one of the largest churches, especially in the southeast, if if not in all of America, um, is is going through this time of. Uh, to use his his term, unhitching himself from the Old Testament. Oh, yeah. And I think that's, you know, he's not going as far to say that the Old Testament is wrong, but I think he's, as you said, going down that slippery slope, and mm. it's it's going to be very, very quickly. And to think of how much influence and pull that this guy has, maybe not so much in the scholarly community right now, but in the people's lives especially just the ones that, that he's teaching on a, any given Sunday morning uh, I mean that, that number in the tens of thousands and Absolutely. that's a that's a good chunk of people in the in the Christian world right now and he's having that influence on them and it's it's frustrating because he doesn't just have pull in America and the American church but but he streams all over the world mm-hmm. and so he is influencing you know people in Europe and Africa and Asia and all these different places and it's it's a little bit unsettling that that someone like him, um, again, nothing against him, I just disagree with his assessment of the Old Testament at this point, is having that much weight and people are, are buying it. It's it's what are we doing, you know? What are we doing?
0: And this is the worst possible time for something like this to happen because, you know, if, if we need to be strengthening strengthening people's faith, and I don't think that that's the way to do it. Well, we so Let's let's move on here. Number three, lack of evangelism.
2: Yeah, that's uh, another issue that I think we are going to have to deal with, and it's amazing how many of these issues kind of go together here. Um, I think one of the reasons that we have a, a lack of evangelism is because we don't have a, a good doctrinal grasp on, on what we believe and just how important it is. And one of the recent things that I've been thinking about is just how connected um, eschatology is to missions. And the mm-hmm. fact, not so much that, that we need to get caught up in our charts and everything else, and I'll, I'm a chart guy, I'll be the first to admit, I, I like a good old plan to know how things are going to go, but um, the, the one of the emphasis, I think, of eschatology is to motivate us missionally. And I, I think we, we've kind of missed the boat on that in our eschatology sense, and we need to get understand that, that this is a, 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 something that we have to do, something that we're called to do. Uh, statistic after statistic, uh, there's so many that we could pull for to show the, the importance of evangelism. And how many people think that evangelism is important versus how many people are doing evangelism is uh, just mind-boggling. It's awful. It's almost disrespectful. Like, how can you say that you think it's an important thing, but yet you are not participating in it on any sort of a regular basis I think I I read that it takes 80 something people typically to win one person to Christ mm. and so for a majority of our churches in America that are you know somewhere that may not even have 80 people um, that's gonna take them a very long time to to win somebody to Christ and, and to bring them in to uh, to that and so what we've resorted to is what I lovingly refer to as sheep stealing and that's <laughs> not good either. We, we are swapping members left and right. Again, because of disunity and traditionalism and all these other things that we can list, we find it easier to just go after those that are a little bit disgruntled with their current church. And we hear just a little bit about like complaints about maybe something the pastor said or the way the committee handled this or whatever, fill in the blank of all the different issues that you can have then uh, coupled with the idea, especially in our area where there's churches everywhere, you know. We have so many different options when it comes to churches, and so we hear somebody complain about their church, and our instinct is, okay, I bet I can get them to come to my church, right. and and we want them to be happy in their local in their local church. We we're we're not about the sheep stealing business, and we've that's what we've done, and it's a it's all the churches I, I, that I've noticed. Very few churches in our area are baptizing people the way that that they should be. I'm not in any sort of like presbyterian way or anything like that but all of the growth from our local churches is coming through sheep stealing Mm -hmm. and that's that's not good at least in our area i can't speak to every area of course but uh, i remember going to the our local association meeting the year-end one there and looking at the numbers of the the amount of baptisms versus the amount of growth to some churches and there would be churches that that gained 60 or 70 members but they baptized three
1: and and i remember
2: thinking to myself that's backwards like I would, I, at least for me, I would rather have 10 members and baptize 10 members than, than have 30 members and baptize two. You know, it, we've got to go back to we're not trying to steal people. We're trying to win people. And Absolutely. There are so many lost people in the world. Even, even here in good old Surrey County, everywhere we turn, there, there's more lost people that we can be evangelizing, and we need to, to, to get it in gear and start evangelizing people.
0: Number 2 uh is apathy. We both agreed on this uh that and this kind of coincides with 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 evangelism. Um, people being apathetic not concerned basically not concerning themselves with the local church with the mission of the church. What what are your thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, uh, I uh particularly was was speaking of, you know, apathy across the board, but particularly in the uh, in the realm of doctrine. I uh taught a little bit, a class just recently um, and I found a statistic from, I believe it was the Pew form if I recall correctly, where they surveyed and they asked 12 questions about Bible and Christianity. Protestant Christians, which is what we would classify as, um, answered 6.5 correctly out of the uh, 12. Wow. Um, so just a little bit north of, of 50%, okay? Now, that's... A little bit alarming that that's how we scored on our own religion, but this is what was super alarming to me, is um, that atheists and agnostics who don't believe the Bible and Christianity scored 6.7 out of 12 questions correctly. Mm. So they scored higher on knowledge of our own religion um, and of our own scripture and of our own God. And that really struck a chord with me, the fact that we are so apathetic to, to God and His Word. A- and how is it that the people, it appears, at least from a statistical standpoint, those that are less apathetic, that pursue God and pursue His Word, end up falling away. And I think it, it kind of goes back to, to your personal testimony that they're looking for answers for tough questions Absolutely. that they encounter, but yet we don't know the answers to those questions. And so we just assume you just need to have more faith. And yes, we all need to have more faith, but at the same time, when there's an answer to the question, uh, we're just too lazy to find it. And so if we can answer the tough questions that I think atheists and agnostics have, the fact that they're more intelligent than us on on something that we believe is not good. And I knew that atheists knew the Bible fairly well, at least most of them did, the ones that I've interacted with in agnostics the same way, but I had no idea that they knew it better than the vast majority of, of Christians that, uh, that attend church on a regular basis.
0: And that leads us to the number one problem. We both put this, placed this on both of our lists that we did independently. At the very, the very top, Uh, both of these lists were very top, and that coincides with number two, and that's doctrinal problems, problems of doctrine. And I want to say something about this real quickly, um, and then turn it over to you, Wes, because we have actually just about, about five, six minutes left. Um, I just want to say something real quickly on this, and it, it coincides with something you just mentioned. I was at a Lifeway Christian Bookstore down in Winston Salem. And was talking to, we were talking, you know, talking about millennials. There were a couple of millennials there, and they were having a good conversation about uh, the sovereignty of God and human freedom. You know, that's a big conversation, and that being the passion of mine, talking about that, I kind of interjected myself in the conversation, and we we discussed, and they we had a wonderful conversation. But the thing that amazed me is that when they asked what I did, I told them I was a pastor. Both of them their mouths dropped. They said, "You're a pastor." I said, "Yeah." They said one of the guys told me. He said my pastor won't discuss these issues with me. Hmm. He says he doesn't talk about theology or you know or anything apologetics, most certainly not. But but he won't even talk about theology with us. And that goes to something you were talking about about the the hunger, the drive for for authenticity among millennials. And and the problem is we're dropping the ball, especially on doctrine. We were talking about biblical authority. That's a big, important doctrine. But we're dropping the ball on many of these issues because we're not giving it focus. What are your thoughts on that?
2: My general thoughts on this are the fact that the church has become entered into almost the entertainment business instead of the um, edifying business. And one of the ways that we edify it is through doctrine and, and making sure that our doctrine is proofed and making sure that our doctrine is accurate. And then we let that doctrine guide our lives and our convictions. And so when you have uh, churches that have their, their pastors, you know, zip lining in to the stage and you, you have uh, pastors that are all about the fog machines and, you know, little biblical cliches and all, all these little things that, that, Aren't really sermons. I I I heard one uh, pastor say that we have a lot of pastorettes that are preaching sermonettes that that are not really uh, doctrinally heavy. And and I think that there's a time and a place to lighten doctrine, Um, but but I think doctrine is important nonetheless. And we we've ventured into the entertainment business because that's what draws the crowd, and that's what we're concerned with. We're concerned with how many people can I get to come to a Sunday morning service or a Wednesday night service. And that's okay to an extent, but we're sacrificing the wrong things when, when we sacrifice doctrine in order to, to make that happen. So it's, it's an easy fix in the sense that it just requires us to go back to teaching doctrine, um, but it's difficult because that will greatly impact probably attendance. And, um, but I think what you'll find is that you will gain attendance with, uh, with time, and the people that you're getting are going to be real, and they're going to be genuine, and mm-hmm. they're going to be authentic. And those are the people you want in your church, anyway.
0: Absolutely, and I've always said I would rather have 50 people sold out for the Lord, wanting to learn the scriptures, wanting to learn doctrine, than to have 500 that's there to be entertained, you know, and and or 5,000 even, you know. Even if it's a smaller group. I mean, some people, when Jesus started teaching doctrine, some people left. I mean, when he was doing miracles, like the feeding of the 5,000, people were following him. By the way, by the time you count women and children is more like the feeding of the 20,000. I mean, just a huge number of people. But when he stopped doing the miracles for a period of time, and then he started preaching and teaching doctrine, a lot of them yes. stopped coming. They were there for the show. And so, you know, it really shouldn't surprise us, but I guess we have to ask ourselves the questions. Which is more important, drawing a crowd, or or growing disciples? And I, you know, and I think that's well put. Well, Wes, I want, we got two minutes here uh, before we're going to be out of time to do uh, the upload here. Uh, but real briefly, we're going to do a podcast here real soon. In fact, we need to do this a lot more often. often. This has been fun. Uh, tell everybody about your book that you yeah. have uh, published or available on Amazon.
2: Yeah, so it's self-published, so nothing, nothing to toot my horn about here, uh, but you can go to Amazon. Um, it's the impact of uh, biblical... Uh, I can't remember the, the title of it, i because <laughs> you caught me off guard. I wasn't expecting this. Um but you can go on to uh, Amazon, search my name uh, west mcgarry m c g a r r y and you should be able to find uh, my book i uh, for my research project for my master's degree, I wrote a paper on the impact of uh, the Bible on racism, and so I turned that very long titled paper into a, a book for uh, for people to hopefully enjoy and read um, so much so that, uh, that I think I've sold about four copies. So that's awesome. <laughs> and uh, so, so shameless plug that uh, if you want to check that out, feel free. Um, I encourage you to, to do that if that's one of the social issues that I think we need to uh, engage in is, is racism in our, uh, in our churches. I think it's a, a very prevalent one, especially in the South, that we need to, to engage in absolutely Wes thank
0: you for being on the air with us today uh, we've definitely got to do this more often this has been a great podcast
2: yeah
0: thanks for having me for Wes McGarry this is Brian Chilton you've been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast
1: the views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of com or its affiliates Bellator Christie Podcast is a production of BellatorChristie.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights reserved. The theme song is Crucified, written by John and Kayla Lemonese, performed by Crosby Lane, and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit BellatorChristie.com and subscribe so that you can receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox for free. Catch us on iTunes. Tune in and stitcher. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you the next time as we enter into the arena of ideas.
0: Hello, Bellator Christie listener. We thank you for listening and for your support. I do have one request to make. Eight years ago, I set up a YouTube account under a gaming name. I had no idea that eight years later that the same account would be used for ministry purposes. In order to change the URL to match Bellator Christi, I need to have over 100 subscribers. Would you please consider going to youtube.com forward slash Powerman and click subscribe. It's free, you won't be hounded, no goofy emails, no crazy phone calls at 1 o'clock at night. All I need is for you to simply subscribe so that I can change the URL. I thank you in advance, and thank you for supporting Bellator Christie.